the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, today on the program, we're going to hear from Jeff Pack. He is the author of Witness to History, the story of Gideon's International. It's a really interesting history. They've been at it for 120 years. We'll find out why and how. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with David Cortman. He's a senior counsel and vice president of U.S. litigation with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about an Oregon uh, Christian school that's been threatened with 30 days jail time or $1,250 fines for reopening for in-person instruction after being cleared to do just that. And while public schools of similar um, circumstance are uh, allowed to continue. There's a lot more to the story. We'll tell you in the five o'clock hour. And we'll talk with Jack, uh, Zach Smith, rather. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about Portland's rogue DA. 543 protest cases. He simply decided, no, nah, we're not going to do anything about that for the sake of justice. Huh. Again, Zach Smith will be my guest also in the five o'clock hour. Taking a look at some of the headlines, coronavirus in Oregon, well, new state mask mandates, eight new deaths, 266 new cases. Well, the Oregon Health Authority announced eight new coronavirus deaths and 266 new cases as it uh, put in place stricter requirements for face coverings and encouraged people us to choose masks over face shields. Well, new state requirements and recommendations for face coverings expand when and where people must wear masks to include all workplaces, even if workers can maintain a social distance. People must also now wear masks in indoor markets, street fairs, and both private and public universities. Well, the health authority is now recommending that people choose masks over face shields because shields don't uh, contain air escaping from the sides or below. Well, Monday's coronavirus case count was below recent uh, rolling averages, which have exceeded some 300 new cases per day since the 7th of October. But the drop is unlikely to reflect a trend, they tell us. Uh, Case counts on Monday are traditionally low, and the Oregon Health Authority predicts ever-increasing infection numbers at least into early November if transmission rates don't go down. Well, Oregon last week also recorded a high test positivity rate at 5.8 percent on 28,960 tests, according to preliminary data. Well, in Clackamas, Coos, Crook, Josephine, Jackson, Deschutes, Lane, Lynn, Malheur, uh, Marion, Multnomah, Polk, Tillamook, Umatilla, Washington and Yamhill counties with the biggest numbers coming out of Washington County, Multnomah County, um, uh, Jackson County and um, Deschutes. Lane County being the highest in those um, those uh, counts. Well, Oregon's 620th death connected to the coronavirus is an 89-year-old Lane County woman with underlying medical conditions who tested positive uh, in the 13th of October. She died on the 17th at a Sacred Heart Medical Center in River Bend, and there are others as well, ages ranging from 
61 uh, all the way up to 89. Well, I have to tell you, my mother is 89. In the next couple of months, she's going to celebrate her 90th birthday, and we are determined to protect her from COVID-19. It can be inconvenient and challenging, but that's just what we're uh, committed to doing. Well, the Oregon Health Authority, as I mentioned, uh, issued updated guidelines on wearing face coverings. This is an attempt to slow the spread. Health officials continue to recommend people take the following precautions to limit the spread of the virus. That you wear a face mask, and now in more places than before. Keep six or more feet away from others. Avoid large gatherings and limit social gatherings. Frequently wash your hands. And while that may not sound all that dissimilar to what we saw before, as I mentioned earlier, where you wear those face masks and the elimination of those shields uh, represents a difference in uh, how Oregonians are now being called upon to protect themselves and others. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has left about 285,000 more people dead in the United States than would be expected in a typical year. Two-thirds of them from COVID-19 itself and the rest from other causes, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Well, the CDC says the novel coronavirus, which causes COVID-19, has taken a disproportionate toll on Latinos and Blacks. As previous um, analysis had noted, but the CDC also found, surprisingly, that it's had it struck 25 to 44 year olds very hard. Their excess death, as we uh, just mentioned yesterday, rate is up 26.5 percent uh, over previous years. The largest change for any age group. They went on to say that it's not clear whether that spike is caused by the well-recognized uh, shift in COVID-19 deaths toward younger people between May and August or deaths from other causes, again, from the CDC. Well, despite the pandemic, apparently teens are faring better with more sleep and family time, according to a new study. While the uh, pandemic has resulted in declining mental health for many adults, teenagers, particularly those in two-parent households, have been faring better thanks to more sleep and spending more time with their families. That's according to a new report. Well, the new report released on Tuesday from the Institute for Family Studies and the Wheatley Institute of Brigham Young University is titled Teens in Quarantine, Mental Health, Screen Time and Family Connection. Well, it's authored by San Diego State University psychology professor Gene Twang, BYU professor of human development Sarah Coyne. Wheatley Institute Associate Director Jason Carroll and W. Bradford Wilcox, the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. Well, the report cites data from a survey of about 1,523 U.S. teenagers during May through July. This survey asks about their mental health, family time, uh, sleep, technology use, and their views on race-related protests and the police. And the data from the survey was then measured against responses from teenagers to identical questions from 2018 Administration of the National Monetary Future Survey. Well, to our surprise, the researchers say they found that teens fared relatively well during quarantine. Depression and loneliness were actually lower among teens in 2020 than in 2018, and unhappiness and dissatisfaction with life were only slightly higher. Trends in teens' time, uh, time use rather, revealed two possible reasons for the unexpectedly positive outcomes. Teens were sleeping more and spending more time with their families, the researchers Explained. Well, the report also cited research showing sleep-deprived teenagers are significantly more likely to suffer from depression, and during the pandemic, the risk factor was lower. In 2018, only 55% of teenagers reported sleeping seven or more hours uh, a night. During the pandemic, however, some 84% of teenagers who were surveyed were still attending school, and they were getting seven or more hours for sleep. So with many of them attending school online, the teenagers have also 
uh, said that when school is held in person, the vast majority of middle and high schools uh, high schools rather begin classes before 8.30 a.m. and some as early as 7 o'clock a.m., requiring many students to get up very early to commute. Well, this creates a mismatch between school schedules and the shift to a later uh, time rhythm that occurs during biological puberty when teens find it difficult to fall asleep earlier, the researcher said. Well, I think you get the general idea Uh, And it's encouraging to know that at least among teens in two-parent households that uh, many of them are faring better. And we need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Jeff Pack. He is the author of Witness to History, the story of Gideon's International. I'm looking forward to that. Well, just a moment ago before the break, I shared with you a rather encouraging story that teens are faring better under COVID-19. This is a relatively small study, and it was uh, uh, limited to those teens in households with two parents. Well, there's another side to that coin. Suicide and drug overdoses are killing more young people than COVID-19, which isn't surprising given the fact that COVID-19 does not impact young people Uh, in the same way it does uh, older people. But as uh, the two pre-existing epidemics have been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic, this is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director, Robert Redfield. He's warning uh, and said in an interview that the Buck Institute for Research on Aging earlier this month, uh, he laid out that suicide and drug overdose have claimed more young lives during the pandemic than COVID-19, a disease that's been attributed to thousands of deaths, deaths rather nationwide this year. We're seeing, sadly, far Far greater suicides now than we are deaths from COVID, he explained. We're seeing far greater deaths from drug overdoses than are above the excess that uh, we had as a background than we are seeing the deaths from COVID. A a, a June survey from the Addiction Policy Forum reported a 20% increase in substance abuse with 34% of respondents experiencing a change in their treatment and recovery due to pandemic. The American Medical Association also voiced concern in a July 20th report stating that over 35 states have reported increases in opioid-related mortality as well as ongoing concerns for those with a mental illness or substance abuse uh, disorder. And uh, suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34 in the United States, second only to unintentional injury, according to the CDC. Well, suicide took the lives of nearly 15,000 people within that age bracket in 2018, according to the CDC data. And last year, the Public Health Institute reported that the suicide rate for kids 10 to 14 has nearly tripled in the last decade, while the suicide rate among older teenagers has increased by 76 percent. So given the earlier uh, pronouncement, but in the report that I cited and this one, we need to be praying for and monitoring how young people in uh, households who are quarantined, how they're faring. Well, in other news, the Commission on Presidential Debate will mute President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden during the two-minute response times allotted to their opponents for commenting on topics during Thursday's debate in Nashville. And yes, the third and final debate is taking place on Thursday. The commission said in a statement it had determined that it is appropriate to adopt measures intended to promote adherence to agreed-upon rules and inappropriate to make changes to those rules. Also uh, included in the debate will be an open discussion forum that won't include the mute option. Thursday's debate will consist of six 15-minute segments, totaling 90 minutes in all as the uh, first debate. Well, Trump and Biden's initial 
Uh, debate was widely panned as both candidates faced backlash for their behavior. The two candidates skipped the second presidential debate after the president was diagnosed with a novel coronavirus and declined to participate in a virtual format. Well, in other developments, the president's campaign sent a letter to debate commission asking for more of a focus on foreign policy. The commission declined. And Trump plans to press Biden on the Hunter Biden um, email stories if the debate moderator doesn't. My guess is he won't or she won't. Well, New Jersey Attorney General uh, Gerber Gruel is suing the Trump administration over claims the president made earlier this year on social media regarding low-income housing and its connection to the rise in crimes. Well, Trump's tweet about the issue in July referencing an Obama-era housing and urban development regulation he rescinded. Secretary Ben Carson announced the change, which returned um, certain federal powers to the states and eliminated arduous paperwork. I'm happy to inform all the people living there a suburban lifestyle dream that you will no longer be bothered or financially hurt by having low-income housing built in your neighborhoods, the commander-in-chief wrote. Your housing prices will go up based on the market and the crime will go down. I have rescinded the Obama-era AFFH rule. Enjoy, end quote. Well, Gruel, a Democrat, tweeted about the case on Monday, saying his formal Freedom of Information Act requests have been ignored by the federal government, prompting him to bring the lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the District of New Jersey. Nothing he uh, tweeted. That's what we got from the Trump administration when we requested data supporting the president's claims linking affordable housing to crime. We called them out and they came up empty. Now we're suing for answers. Well, in other developments, uh, HUD revoked that uh, Obama-era rule designed to diversify the suburbs, while Trump tells voters who live in the suburbs they will no longer be bothered. Glenn Greenwald has trashed the media's cone of silence around the Hunter Biden email scandal, and cancer-stricken Rush Limbaugh says he can no longer deny he's under a death sentence. Jeff Bridges reveal a, uh, uh, revealed rather a lymphoma diagnosis, and the Supreme Court has turned away a uh, Pennsylvania GOP effort to block extending the period for turning in ballots in the presidential election. Steve Mnuchin and Nancy Pelosi's COVID-19 stimulus talks have continued as Chuck Schumer's effort to adjourn the Senate until after the 2020 election failed. And a Biden election win could decide the fate of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Well, Biden's economic plan could crush the nation's recovery from the coronavirus pandemic, some predict. Well, Steve Mnuchin and the uh, stimulus uh, debate is continuing. Uh, Biden's election could uh, win. Could, uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm repeating something I've already said. A conservative economist says that Biden's economic plan could crush the uh, recovery from coronavirus. Well, a more details as they uh, emerge surrounding the uh, computer, Hunter and uh, Joe Biden's controversy is growing from Quinn Hillier. Remember that when the Biden laptop reportedly contained um, a cache of 40,000 emails, text messages by the thousands and other documents, most of them replete with shorthand references, dates, times, nicknames, and financial details. Most of them are almost assuredly um, unnewsworthy, but almost impossible to fake with any degree of success. Faking a single document in a way that can fool somebody, such as Dan Rather, is one thing. Faking tens of thousands is exponentially harder. The reality is that much of what has been reported can be independently assessed for veracity. There are notes supposedly in Hunter Biden's handwriting. Uh, does the handwriting uh, match with other samples? There are emails in his uh, to his daughter. Do they use terms and expressions unique to the Bidens? There are financial details and so on. 
The Washington Examiner has more on that. Margot Cleveland says it is the evidence of the former vice president's corruption and the national security risk our country would face by electing Biden. That is the story of the MacBook hard drive, not the salacious verified photographs and videos of Hunter Biden. Well, the back and forth continues. Well, Idaho teachers are planning to walk out of the job to protest having to work. Over 600 of them allied, calling in sick, losing credibility with their students um, when they lie to their teachers. Tim Carney points out, can they fire every teacher who doesn't show up? Carol Markowitz says fire all of them and return the money to the parents. Bethany Mandel says in the event that schools does reopen, do you really want to send them back? At this point, given all of the data available, there are only a few possibilities regarding the many teachers still refusing to go back to work across the country. One, they don't actually want to go back to work but still want to get paid. Two, they're unable to assess the risk, especially if they are under age, under the age of 60 to 70 percent and have no underlying health restrictions. And three, they're unable to assess the data regarding prior school openings and the spread of the virus. Uh, are these honestly the kinds of people we want teaching your kids? Again, regarding the Idaho teachers walk out of the on the job. Well, Democrats are planning major economic changes if they sweep uh, the House and the Senate in uh, November, which uh, Politico writes about describing in glowing terms the ma- the massive changes that are planned. Lonnie Chen's looks at the likely massive tax hikes Americans will face under the Biden administration in the Wall Street Journal. And rap star 50 Cent, or 50 Cent if you want to say it correctly, says he's now voting for Donald Trump after discovering details about Joe Biden's tax plan. Now, some would say that's impossible because he's African-American and African-Americans are by law and biology required to vote only one way. Well, Robert Kelly uh, believes Trump haters are far more likely to sit through the long polling questions um, with regard to a pollster explaining why other pollsters are wrong on Trump. Kylie Smith says that who is Robert Kelly, uh, the uh, chief pollster for the Travalgar Group, the only major polling organization that publishes its results and correctly predicted Donald Trump in 2016 in Michigan and Pennsylvania. He predicted Trump again uh, is going to win in Michigan, along with Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona and Texas. And he calculates that Trump will be reelected with roughly 280 electoral votes. So whether or not he is, uh, he's credible in 2020, um, as he was in 2016, we'll have to see once that election comes and goes. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jeff Pack, author of Witness to History, the story of Gideon's International. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I think most of us are familiar with the Gideons, but are we really informed about who they are, when they began, and what their core values are. I don't think I've ever spent an evening in a hotel without finding a Gideon Bible in the drawer. It is reassuring, it's comforting, and to think of the work that they've done over decades is exciting to me. Well, since its inception, more than two billion scriptures have been placed and distributed by the Gideons, not just in hotels, by the way. Jeff Peck writes about this in his latest book. He says the rapid moral decline of post-Christian societies means there's an even greater need for seeing and hearing God's word. But today we face some new challenges. Well, he's the author of Witness to History. It's the story about the Gideons that few people know. At a time when distributing Bibles in hotels and schools and businesses often comes with opposition, he says it's more important to do so now than ever. He cites opposition from organizations like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, but says this is not the time to withdraw from providing the words 
of life. So I'm excited that we're going to talk about the Gideons and the book we're uh, discussing, Witness to History, the Story of the Gideons International. Well, my guest is Jeff Pack. He is a marketing professional and former director of communications for the Gideons International. He's also speaker for the Gideons in churches and other events. He has uh, helped build several technology companies, and he sits on the boards of several nonprofits serving Nashville's refugee community. So he's from Nashville. We're just delighted to welcome Jeff Pack. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Georgine, and uh, greetings from Nashville. You know, I think most of us think we're familiar with the Gideons, but I think the depth and breadth of your work is probably lesser known than just the name itself and the Bibles we find when we're staying at a hotel or a motel anywhere across the country. Let's begin with the history and where the Gideons began and where they got the name. Sure. Um, The Gideons began in 1899 in Janesville, Wisconsin, and it was put together by the founders who were traveling salesmen, um, and they would go across the country, you know, leave on Sunday night and come back on uh, Friday night, uh, staying in hotel lobbies. And uh, it was kind of the salesmen at the time had a poor reputation for gambling and profanity. And so the three men, uh, John Nicholson and Sam Hill and uh, Bill Knights, um, got together they two of them happened to be in the same room one night at a hotel in Janesville and um they uh just started thinking about what would an association be like if we could put it together that could hold men accountable so in the early years it was really just an accountability um be- between the, the members and it grew rapidly and they had emblems so they were known wherever they uh, would go on trains uh, across the country and really what we're known for the bibles didn't come along until about uh, you know a decade later in uh, 1908 um when they had had the idea of placing these Bibles in the hotel rooms uh, since they were all traveling there anyway, and it was Mm -hmm. great uh, as their witness to go ahead and start that. So that's how really we got started. You know, as uh, you mentioned, most people are familiar with the Gideons placing Bibles in hotels, but it really is about so much more. You mentioned the goal of uh, these men holding one another accountable as they're traveling across the country. But placing Bibles in places uh, like hotels, but not limited to hotels, was not the primary goal. Can you talk a little bit about what the goal was and is and some of the other places that Bibles were placed by the Gideons? Sure. Um what uh, our goal is really the association of uh, Christian business and professional men for service. Uh, that would be our personal testimony and sharing our personal work and placing Bibles or portions thereof uh, ac- across the world. Now we're in 200 countries and where we place the Bibles, the majority of them go into schools and uh, universities uh, and students across the world still to this day, more so outside of the country uh, will distribute 70 million scriptures this year. About 10% of those will be in the United States, and the rest will go all across the globe. Uh, largest uh, growing countries uh, where our work is is India, uh, Philippines, Brazil. So the scriptures will go to students, and they'll go into hospitals, uh, which we started in the 1920s. They'll go into uh, the military all across the world, which we started that in the 1940s with the World War II. That's just incredible. 2.4 billion Bibles uh, and New Testaments distributed to date. That is an incredible number. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that um, during the time when the Bibles were first distributed, there was uh, there were challenges. Do you believe our culture now is more open to or increasingly hostile to Christianity and to God's word in particular? 
It depends on where you are, obviously, in the mm-hmm. world. Some places in uh, Africa, it's very easy for us to walk into, um, you know, any school and uh, distribute uh, scriptures. Um, I've been chased by nuns in Argentina, uh, <laughs> trying to distribute <laughs> scriptures. And, you know, I've been welcomed and both uh, asked to leave uh, at uh, distributions in the United States. So as far as the, the our culture in general is pretty hostile, I mean, pick a subject, um, it's gotten that way. Uh, Christianity, you know, I think um, Martin Luther had said that, you know, we shouldn't be startled by persecution, but strengthened mm-hmm. by it. And, uh, you know, as Christians, you know, you can go back as far as Job 5-7, where, you know, man is born to trouble, uh, surely his sparks fly upward. I think of that every night when I light a fire in my backyard. So, But uh, w- the way we handle it is the key, is that we approach it with compassion and not anger, and that's the hard part. I know that placing Bibles is one aspect of the work of the Gideons, but also uh, encouraging people to read the scriptures and to be guided by of the scriptures that have a relationship with Jesus. Can you talk a bit about how that part of the emphasis is is carried out? Uh, I think we tend to think of Gideon's as placing a Bible anonymously walking away, but that's only a part of the work. Right. And, um, you know, we, like on a campus, we'll go there and we'll actually, um, uh, you know, discuss and have conversations with people. It's funny uh, that some campuses actually allow us on in the freedom of speech area on the campus. Uh, and how, uh, you know, we try to feel, um, you know, I, you know, always have said pe- people never feel welcome in our churches until they feel welcome in our lives. So we try to establish relationship with people as we go uh, along in our um, daily um, work of uh, distributing scriptures. That could be in everything from the grocery store now uh, to restaurants. And really just trying to help people get them in a church. It doesn't have to be my church. It just try to you know, point them in the right direction of getting the church and then the pastors that we work with take over from there. You, in the uh, press release that I received from uh, your representative, you point out that Bible-centeredness is decreasing and skepticism is growing. And the percentage of adults who read the Bible daily has dropped from 14% to 9%, which is an unprecedented drop of 5%, according to Barna Research. It's amazing to me to consider that only 14% um, of, of adults read the Bible on a regular basis. So that's a challenge for uh, anyone and certainly for the Gideons. Right. And I think it's uh, what Christians have, uh, I think, 4.4 Bibles in their houses each. Uh, so reading and understanding it has always been um, mm-hmm. you know, a difficult trip and also, you know, the work of the devil to be able to do everything you can to keep it from that. Uh, sometimes I think people will see more scripture in their Facebook reads uh, than they will out of their Bible sitting on the uh, you know, kitchen table. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we come back, I would love to give you an opportunity to share some of the stories because it's uh, it's incredible to consider how God's word, when placed in the hands of some individuals by the Gideons, it has transformed their lives personally, it has saved their lives physically, and has had a tremendous impact. So uh, just emphasizing the necessity and the benefit of God's word is one of the things I respect so much about the Gideons. But we'll get into that in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Jeff Pack. He is the uh, author of Witness to History. The story of the Gideons International, which is uh, fascinating when you consider these men who wanted to hold one another accountable, grew into an organization that has placed God's word in uh, places where people frequent uh, over the last, uh, what, 120 years. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue in just a moment. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Jeff Pack. He's the author of Witness to History, the story of the Gideons International. He is a marketing professional and former director of communications for the Gideons International. He's also a speaker for the Gideons in churches and other events. Well, just before the break, I um, invited you to talk about uh, some of the stories of people whose lives have been transformed by God's word, whether that is their their inner life or even their their physical life being preserved. Can you give us a short story about the, the Gideons, uh, of a story of those who have received scriptures from the Gideons and the impact that has had? Uh, uh, Staff Sergeant Aaron Zahn is one example that comes to mind. Yeah, that's um, oldie but goodie. Um, yeah. Aaron Zahn was um, uh, from North Dakota, and he was in the war in 1945. He was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany. And uh, when his unit came under attack, uh, he felt something hit his chest. And so he reached in his front pocket, and that's where he kept his Gideon New Testament. Uh, and as he took it out, he saw that the bullet had just penetrated uh, the New Testament and not his heart. And so he was curious as to where the bullet stopped. And it stopped right on Psalm 27, which is the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, that's great news. And we've had lots of people, lots of stories, even in the Vietnam War of where, you know, they keep them in their top pocket. And and sometimes the bullets would hit there and the New Testaments would uh, save them. So it's a, you know, incredible story, you know, hard to believe, but that's. That's precisely what happened. Well, tell us some uh, stories that may be a bit more up to date, because there are plenty about how God's word has impacted the lives of those who have received it in connection with the Gideons. Sure. Now, uh, Georgine, I know you're a musician. so you'll I am. Appreciate this, <laughs> uh, back, back in uh, the 1960s, there was a musician named Tommy, and uh, he had some hits on the radio, uh, but he also hit big with the booze and the pills and had no fear of chemicals and uh um, so lots of damages to hotel rooms, as we know musicians will sometimes do, not us. Uh, then one night in the Holiday Inn, he uh, picked up a Gideon Bible. And at the time, Tommy was into UFOs, um, spaceships and time travel. And he opens up the Gideon Bible to Ezekiel, of all places. And as we know, that's full of uh, wheels in the sky, chariots, blue crystals, Um and Tommy said, well, that's really God talking to me. But uh, then he got on with drinking and he went to the next city, the next tour. When he gets to the next city, he gets in the hotel and he sees a Bible. Now he thinks they're following him. So <laughs> he gets the Bible back out and he's reading it. And it's right there. He said, look, I'm just tired of, of this. I'm tired of my life. And he gave his life to Christ. Uh, the gentleman was Tommy James of Tommy James and the Shondells. And he oh went on goodness. to write a number one song about his conversion, which is Crystal Blue Persuasion. Isn't that amazing? And most people would have no idea what that, <laughs> what that song is about. <laughs> There'll be peace and good brotherhood, Crystal Blue Persuasion. So, <laughs> you know, that's one good story. We can go on and on. A more recent one, maybe, um, um, is a gentleman by a student named Craig. And uh, Craig was going to the uh, Oklahoma City University. Uh, and he joined a fraternity where he got in a l- little bit of trouble. So to uh, keep the fraternity uh, on campus, he pledged, well, uh, he'll start a Bible study in the fraternity house. Well, on the day before the first Bible study, he didn't have a Bible. And there behold, walking across campus, 
was a Gideon passing out Bibles that day, and he took that little New Testament, and he started a small little Bible study in the basement of that fraternity. Uh, well, Craig kept growing that small little study to become Life Church. His name is Craig Groeschel, and he now has a church with over 30,000 people in Edmond, Oklahoma. So we never know just where one little Bible having up. an impact on the lives one. of those who received it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, what what were or are the drummers, and how did they fit into the outreach plan of of the Gideons? Sure. The drummers is um, the term they used to use for uh, sales people that they would actually just you know go out and drum up new business. So each of the um, three men who started the Gideons, and by the way, you asked me about the name, it comes from Gideon 7, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, Judges 7 and the Gideon story there. Uh, but all of them were drummers, and uh, they would just be out on trains. Like I say, Sunday night they go out, Friday night they come back in. And uh, that's kind of where the, the term drummer, which is, you know, uh, salesman now. Yeah. Now, who are the Gideons today? We're we're familiar with that history now of what, uh, how it started. But who are the drummers today? Who are the men and and women who are distributing scriptures today? Are they from all walks of life, or do they tend to be among those who travel? Uh, it's people who are out in public uh, mostly. It'll it'll be businessmen still, lots of salespeople, uh, managers, and uh, people who have uh, time as well to be able to devote to the ministry and a flexible schedule. But you'll find we have uh, everything from doctors to lawyers and such, um, and um, it, it just continues to grow throughout. Uh, the world, each uh, you know, country is a little bit different profiles, but they're all professional men and women, and, uh, men and their wives, and uh, with one purpose to reach, uh, you know, boys and girls, men and women, uh, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And today there's about a quarter million uh, members in over 200 countries, um, and we're able to pass out scriptures in about 100 languages. Do you find it more challenging today to play scriptures? Uh, do you, you mentioned a couple of examples where you have uh, faced opposition. Is that more common today or uh, or not? Uh, it's been uh, around us you know, since the beginning. In the 1950s, there was a lot of uh, objection to passing out Bibles. Uh, in, the, in the 60s, uh, you know, prayer was taken out of schools. Uh, in, in the 70s, we were able to go on campuses, which, you know, uh, college campuses are a little bit more liberal. Uh, but then uh, towards the 80s and 90s, had a lot of opposition from public schools. The Gideons always go by the law or by what the school board tells us. Um, you know, they'll be, um, you know, uh, people out there defending it. In fact, I think one of your guests, Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, we've worked with before. Um, and so there's always someone there to help us. But we, ju- if we just, you know, s- stay in our guardrails and, and do what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, uh, we tend to be able to keep going. In schools where we've had lots of opposition, um, you know, maybe in the, in the South, a little bit easier in the North and maybe get a little harder. Um, and, uh, we've been able to develop, uh, the life book, which is a, the, the book of Mark, and they're able to, we're able to work with the churches in their youth groups and be able to have them take it and share it with their friends. So we're working mm-hmm. through the pastors, through the, uh, youth pastors, but just a really, you know, kind of, um, teen version of uh, the book of Mark, and they're able to share it with their friends in the places where we can't really get into. So God 
you know, always gives us a witty invention, as the Bible says. And, uh, you know, that's uh, been our uh, latest way of being able to reach uh, students. Excellent. What do you think our um, our listeners might find most surprising about the Gideons? Um, well, they, they should walk away with a, a you know a good history of uh, each chapter is a decade. So um, each chapter profiles the you know the events that happened during that decade and where the Gideons fit into that. For instance, when Russia fell, we were right behind there walking, uh, you know, Bibles across the uh, border as it fell, uh, Berlin Wall the same. And uh, as a decolonization of Africa, we were able to go into each, in the 50s and the 60s, we were able to go into each uh, of those countries as they uh, got their freedom. Um, so you'll, you'll pick up the history, but I think what you'll learn also is that, um, you know, as I say in the book, that uh, everything has changed, but nothing is different. People still need mm. Jesus That's after right. all these years. Um, you know, we don't have to make the Bible relevant. Uh, we just have to show its relevance. Absolutely. Well, I am so appreciative of your providing us with a resource to learn the history of the Gideons. I'm grateful for the work that has been done over the last 120 years to place God's word wherever it's been welcome and in some places where it's been unwelcome. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. One final question. If our listeners are interested in uh, the Gideons, perhaps in, in the outreach, what's the best way for them to learn more? Sure. Um, the best place for the book and to learn a little bit about the Gideons um, uh, is witness2history.org. Again, that's witness2history.org. And you can find information about uh, the book as well as the ministry there and the way to order it, um, you know, to toll free today. Witness2history.org. Hey, Jeff Pack, thank you so much for talking with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Georgine. God bless. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next, so stay with us. When we return, we'll talk with David Cortman. He's a senior counsel and vice president of the U.S. litigation with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about a struggle with one particular Oregon Christian school that has been told they cannot reopen despite every other public school in their area can under the same circumstance. We'll fill you in on all the details uh, coming up in the next hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In just a moment, we're going to talk with David Cortman, Senior Counsel uh, with Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about a case here in Oregon in which uh, the governor's double standard on who should be allowed to uh, open with in-class uh, education will be exposed. But we'll also talk with Zach Smith later this hour. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about Portland's rogue DA and why he's decided not to prosecute those who were uh, charged with crimes during the protests that continue in the city of Portland. Well, Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys, representing a private religious K-12 Oregon school, filed a lawsuit in federal court on Friday against Governor Catherine Brown to challenge her order that threatens private schools with 30 days in jail and $1,250 fines for reopening in-person instruction, despite allowing public schools of identical size in the same county permission to resume in-person classes. Well, here to give us some history on this case and where it stands now and why the lawsuit is David Cortman. He's senior counsel. He's also vice president of U.S. litigation with Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, great to be on. Thanks for having me. Well, this is another extraordinary case in the uh, uh, in the state of Oregon. Your first COVID lawsuit in the state was Edgewater Christian Fellowship versus Brown. Uh, this one's a little bit different. Why don't you start from the beginning and tell us what's going on with Hermiston Christian School? This is really a remarkable story. 
It really is. And, you know, people hear the stories about, you know, government overreach and shutting down the economy. What's interesting is, though, often um, governors and, and, and governments, they, they pick and choose their friends. They allow some people yeah. to open and some people not. And this is a perfect story of that. So it's interesting, over the summer, um, the government was saying to private religious schools, look, you're going to be able to open in the fall. Just make sure you get yourselves ready. Follow all the guidelines. They're expending all this money. They're making sure that they rehire their teachers. They're separating, given social distancing, all those requirements they decide. And then right before school starts, the governor sneaks in, and I say sneaks in because the previous orders had what's called a small school exception. So while schools couldn't open K-12, through you could if they were younger in daycare, and you could if they were in college, so we could talk about that. But K-12 through wasn't allowed to open, but there was a small school exception. That applied to both private and public schools. Well, at the last minute, without saying anything publicly, they took out the private schools and only allowed the exception for public schools. So if you were a small public school, you could open in the fall, and if you were a small private school, you couldn't. And, of course, once the schools found out, um, they decided that they would take a stand on it and, and contacted ADF. Well, I'm glad that they did. I think it's important to, to point out that the Oregon Department of Education had granted the initial approval as a, an emergency child care facility for children aged uh, uh, for school aged children. And after conducting a virtual inspection of the school facilities, they noted that Hermiston Christian's facility is very clean and organized. We're very well prepared and we're following the health and safety guidelines. So there was no question that they fell short of what the state had required them to do. Have you received an answer as to why uh, this this small private Christian school that met all of their standards, why they are not permitted to open, while public schools of similar description were permitted to uh, to have in-person classes? So, so here's what we found out. The first point you made was was a good one, and that is 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 when you decide to say you know, yes, you can go ahead and open, and then all of a sudden that changes for no scientific reason. Obviously, it raises a question. So what we found out through the investigation was there was a conference call with a, a liaison from the governor's office, and a city council member basically said, look, why are we opening, you know, public schools but not private schools? And one of the responses was, well, we don't want a mass exodus from public schools going to private schools, so we're going to keep private schools shut. Well, the problem with that is that, vi- that violates the Constitution. That's, a, that's an illegal reason to say we're going to allow kids to attend public schools uh, but not private schools. Yeah, it discriminates against parents who choose to provide a religious education for their kids and deprives those who might choose under this circumstance to do so of the, the freedom Uh, to place their children in a school that's functioning. Now, you filed suit. What happens from this point forward in um, requiring that this be reviewed? So as you mentioned, we filed suit in federal court a couple of days ago. We are drafting uh, an emergency motion basically asking the court while the case continues to allow the private school to open. In the same exact county uh, that our clients are in, there's a small public school that's open and operating now that's actually a single building that's tiny. Our clients have a 10,000-square-foot facility. They'll be able to social distance. They'll be able to bring their students back. And by the way, there's only a little bit over 50 students. It's not, it's not massive. And so mm-hmm. we're going to be asking the court to allow that private school to open while the case goes forward. What's likely to be the timeline? Obviously, um, students are, are deprived of in-class learning during this season. Will this be expedited, or what, what are your expectations? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll be asking for expedited hearings. We're hoping to take care of it in the next week or two. Our hope was, after seeing the lawsuit, the governor's office would say, hey, you're right, this isn't, this isn't fair, it's not constitutional. You know, COVID doesn't know if the student is sitting in a public school or a private school, so it can't be, you know, part based on science or, or health issues, and that they would allow the school to open. We haven't heard from them so far, uh, but if, if we're required to, obviously we'll go to court and ask the judge for the same relief. I know one of the things that you raise in this suit is that there are a, a number of single parent households for which this makes it very difficult if uh, learning takes place in the home and that there are some low income families that are being impacted as well. These are, it seems to me, compelling reasons aside from the fact that it's discriminatory to single out a private Christian school uh, and not allow them to reopen under the same circumstances and approval that these public schools are opening in as well. So there's there's a compelling case. Uh, the expectation is that you shouldn't have any trouble to in winning this case? <laughs> well, that's the expectation, but you never know these days. I mean, one of the problems we've been seeing is that sometimes courts are giving uh, too much deference to, to, to governors. Uh, you know, and there's a difference between an emergency situation where something pops up for a week or two, but when you're going on six, seven, eight, nine months with no end in sight, you know, that's the time the court has to step in as an equal branch of government and say, look, you know, this isn't based on science. This is not based on health. This is pure discrimination based on economic reasons, and that violates the law. So we're certainly hoping that the court steps in and finds that the governor has gone too far in this case. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to also mention that in order to meet the standards that have been set by the state of Oregon, the school uh, incurred significant costs in uh, cleansing the facility, making sure things are socially distanced, all the resources that are necessary to not only open the school, but maintain the cleanliness that's required and so on. Uh, That cost the school, the tuitions that would uh, normally be collected, all of that is having a financial impact on uh, Hermiston Christian School as well, is it not? Well, it is, and and not only all the money that they've expended based on the promises that they could open that was changed at the last second, but as you mentioned, there's parents who can't stay home uh, to help their kids with online learning because they have to go to work. And And people have to remember, too, whether public schools are open or closed, they're still getting all their money from the government, so it doesn't affect them like it does private schools. Mm-hmm. And so that's a big issue because it's not just about money. It's about educating the kids, and we have to make sure that we keep doing it even during these times. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow this story. I appreciate ADF and the work that you do, uh, and uh, we'll uh, continue to follow and look forward to the outcome. David Cortman, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, thanks for having me again. Really appreciate it. Again, David Cortman is Senior Counsel and Vice President of U.S. Litigation with Alliance Defending Freedom on Oregon uh, Christian School in Hermiston that serves low-income families in its community who cannot simultaneously supervise their children's remote education while working outside the home to provide essential uh, income. So uh, what happens in this case uh, will be determined, uh, we hope, Um, by a judge very soon. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Zach Smith, legal counsel from the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about Portland's rogue DA who decided not to prosecute a good number of cases in the interest of justice. He agrees with the cause and therefore they shouldn't be held accountable to the same standards that you and I would be held accountable to under different circumstances. That's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as we know here in the metro area, Portland County District Attorney Mike Schmidt has refused to prosecute more than half of the protest related cases referred to his office by law enforcement here in Portland. That's 543 cases that will never be tried. 
Well, he says he's acting or not acting in this case in the interest of justice. He's not saying there's insufficient evidence or some other legal impediment to prosecution. He's just saying that he won't do his job. Well, here to talk more about that is Zach Smith, who's written on the subject. He is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, as a Portland resident, it's a bit frustrating when the Multnomah County District Attorney says he's fulfilling his campaign promise, and in the interest of justice, he's not going to do his job. Um, He has a perverse sense of justice, uh, and as you point out, this is encouraging rioters in Portland to continue their criminal activity night after night, and those of us who live here are increasingly frustrated by that fact. What impact do you think this has had, not only on rioters, but other law enforcement agencies who have been called upon to come into Portland and help? I think it encourages lawlessness in a lot of ways. Police officers can go out, do their jobs day after day, night after night, but at the end of the day, uh, no one will be held accountable uh, for their lawless actions if the local prosecutor refuses to do his job. And unfortunately, that's exactly, like you said, what Mike Schmidt is doing. He's dismissed 543 uh, cases supposedly in the interest of justice. And if you go back and look at his campaign he ran, look at his website, uh, you can see this is part of his larger ideology to fundamentally transform the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, uh, this, you know, he calls himself a progressive I call him a rogue prosecutor. And unfortunately, uh, Mike Schmidt is part of a larger movement of rogue prosecutors across the country. You, um, in the the column that I'm referencing, you cite Peter Curtis, uh, who goes by the name of Tabitha Poppins. He's been arrested at least five times. um, And he described the uh, uh, Multnomah County District Attorney's policy as a win for him and others like him. Hours after he was uh, bailed out of jail for riotous offenses, he was living it up again in another riot, banging a, a, a bucket, standing atop a stolen uh, table, burning in the streets, and so on. Uh, and this has happened uh, over and over again. There are no consequences, despite the fact that uh, property has been destroyed, uh, lives have been endangered, and, and so on. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, you know, one of the uh, changes that's championed by Mike Schmidt and other rogue prosecutors is uh, significantly reforming the way bail works. Uh, And so there's a big push to release people on their own recognizance, just release them on their word that they won't go out, do anything bad while they're pending trial or waiting for their charges to be resolved. And unfortunately, what we've seen uh, in Portland and in other cities where this practice has been adopted is that the same offenders are reoffending. And in Portland's case, night after night. And again, like you said, uh, with Tabitha Poppins, uh, as as that individual goes by, uh, you know, shortly after being bailed out, uh, right back on the streets again, engaging in you know this lawless activity. And it really has a bad effect and encourages lawlessness uh, and, you know, really undermines the rule of law in a lot of ways. Yeah, I remember reading sometime back that the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office decided they're not going to send deputies to help restore order in Portland. And I wondered at the time what the reason for that 
uh, is. And he points out, as you point out in your column, that why should we put uh, his officers at risk? The same offenders are arrested night after night only to be released by the court and not charged with a crime. Uh, That's endangering the lives of law enforcement and the community all over again. And the Oregon State Police followed the same uh, pattern as well. We're not going to keep our officers working out, uh, working in Portland uh, for the same reason. So for those of us who live here, this is not only frustrating, but it has, um, I suppose, diminished the capacity of law enforcement to do its job in protecting not only the people, but the property of those of us who live here. Uh, Now, you make reference to this dashboard of Portland's protest cases. Can you explain this uh, dashboard that's been published that is supposed to reflect um, what, from my perspective, is Schmidt's uh, dereliction of duty? Sure. So Mike Schmidt has published a dashboard that uh, purports to put out various statistics from his office, uh, which, you know, I suppose that's a good thing, greater transparency. Unfortunately, what the statistics show on the dashboard is that Mike uh, Schmidt is not doing his job and is really living up to his campaign promise not to prosecute just whole swaths of the criminal law. And so, so far, uh, the DA's rejected 666 cases, uh, which is nearly 70% of the cases that have been brought to him. And of those, as you mentioned, 543 were dismissed in the interest of justice. So over 81% of the cases that Mike Schmidt has dismissed have been for this amorphous interest of justice uh, reason, uh, which really looks like nothing more uh, than that Mike Schmidt just doesn't agree with the, the laws he's being asked to enforce. And so because of that, he's not doing his job. Yeah. He also points out that this whole plan is to reduce incarceration and racial disparities and to improve outcomes for justice-involved individuals and crime victims. I noted that uh, this racial disparity um, the race in 77% of the cases were white, 10% are black, 6% Hispanic. And as an African-American living in Portland, this is very frustrating to me. He's going to release 77% of the cases uh, that don't even fit his own uh, profile. 45%, as you point out, of the cases are 26 to 35-year-olds. 38% are 18 to 25-year-olds. Two-thirds are male. Only 32% are female. Uh, again, just released, no charges. For those whose property has been damaged, for those who have been threatened, Um, Apparently, their lives are not nearly as important as those who have um, created mischief and worse in the Portland area. That's exactly right. And unfortunately, Georgine, this isn't a problem that's uh, confined to Portland. You know, if you look across the country at other cities like Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, St. Louis, uh, rogue prosecutors have been elected in those cities as well, often uh, backed by big liberal donors. And what we've seen in those cities, just like Mike Schmidt, these rogue prosecutors are refusing to enforce the law, are taking very lax stances on uh, bail, granting bail to individuals. And unfortunately, what we're seeing, we're seeing a rise in violent crime, not only in violent gun crimes, but also in the homicide rates. And so I think it really emphasizes why it's so important for prosecutors to do their jobs, enforce the laws that are written, and really fulfill their duties uh, to protect the citizens in their jurisdictions. Yeah, I'll just invoke the name George Soros and just leave it at that. Um, well, you know, obvi- go ahead. Well, Georgine, it is George Soros. He's pumping in massive amounts of money, but there are also other big uh, te- right. uh, titans. Uh, Facebook co-founder Brian Moskowitz, his wife Carrie Tuna, uh, they're working uh, alongside George Soros and just p- pumping in millions, millions of dollars uh, in total into these local DA races. 
Well, I so appreciate your making this point. And for Oregonians who are for law and order, we want things to be done well, but we also want justice to to be defined in the way that we typically have defined it. And that's not letting citizens and those who come to this area from other parts of the, the country to simply be let free because the DA approves of the activity they're engaged in. It's important that we understand what's happening, that this is part of a larger movement, and that when we cast our ballots in the future, uh, we can cast it in an informed way to know that, well, the DA is not really interested in functioning as a prosecutor. Uh, therefore, we should probably release him to do something that better reflects uh, what his heart's desire is rather than the job description that we all expected he would function under. And Portland has paid the price. Absolutely. You know, unfortunately, a lot of these rogue DAs view themselves as the, their jurisdiction's chief public defenders. That is not their duty. Their duty is no. to see that justice is done uh, in individualized cases. And more importantly, it's to enforce the laws on the book. They're not legislators. Uh, they're not, you know, uh, individuals uh, primed to disregard the laws that are on the books. And so, again, I think you're exactly right that it's very important Uh, that citizens know what's going on, know what the goals of this rogue prosecutor movement are, and are able to make informed decisions uh, when many of these individuals are up for re-election again. Uh, Absolutely. Well, Zach Smith, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Zach Smith is a legal fellow in the think tank's uh, Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. That's the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the New York Times is questioning uh, the politics of Amy Coney Barrett and her adopting black children. Apparently that's... Um, That has to be considered suspect if you're a conservative. Now, if you're a a liberal, then that's considered noble. Well, the article used that white uh, saviorism line. Uh, The far left has been uh, has been pushing in all of this. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says the political left and the press should leave Judge Barrett's children alone. I mean, isn't that the standard? The nominee introducing her family in a few uh, sentences of uh, prepared remarks does not give the New York Times license to start treating minor children like objects of public curiosity. Um, uh, Lindsey Graham posted a video of him being harassed by a rabid anti-Barrett leftist while walking through an airport. And the Senate has a big week, including a possible relief bill and the SCOTUS committee vote. Some things to consider. Well, the Supreme Court has allowed Pennsylvania to count absentee ballots after Election Day. So will we know who wins? Probably not. On Election Day, the court was split on the issue. Mark Hemingway points out that while the GOP is focused on the risks of mail-in ballots, Pennsylvania Democrats are expressing worries that security measures for mail ballots will disenfranchise their voters. Earlier this week, Democratic Philadelphia City Commissioner Lisa Dealey sent a letter to the Republican leaders of the Pennsylvania legislature warning that a recent state Supreme Court decision threatens to upend November's elections by disallowing mail-in ballots that aren't returned in secrecy envelopes. Secrecy envelopes are an additional envelope or sleeve that make it difficult for poll workers and others to see through the return envelope and read what's on the ballot and generally make ballots harder to tamper with. So there's a lot going on leading up to the election. 
Meanwhile, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey uh, would have to answer to their effort to protect Biden. Senator Graham is considering subpoenas on Facebook and Twitter over the New York censorship, the New York Post censorship. Um, From another story, Facebook's election integrity expert formerly worked as a special advisor for European policy to Joe Biden while he served as vice president. No conflict of interest there. Meanwhile, the China box office has exceeded the U.S. with help from the virus. Uh, They spread to the world. Well, the Justice Department filed a landmark antitrust case against Google. The Supreme Court has agreed to review two of Trump's major immigration policies, the Remain in Mexico policy and funding for the border barrier. And the Debate Commission has nixed foreign policy as a topic in the foreign policy debate. Interestingly enough, the final debate will feature muted mics for two minutes of initial comments on each topic. And predictably, Chief Justice John Roberts sided with Democrats in denying Pennsylvania GOP efforts to block the extended ballot turn-in period. Rapper 50 Cent has endorsed Donald Trump after seeing Biden's tax plan. And the Trump campaign and Republican National Committee unveiled a $55 million ad buy for the final two weeks. The Biden campaign has pulled an ad after a military leader says his image was used without permission. And DNI uh, John Ratcliffe says Hunter Biden emails and laptop are not part of some Russian disinformation campaign. The House GOP is pushing William Barr for special counsel to investigate the Biden revelations. And the Federalist says Biden boosters uh, financed his prodigal son's entire career. Well, the House race is a test of how deeply blue Virginia has gone, according to the Washington Examiner, and Florida is edging toward a $15 minimum wage. Oregon's last coal plant has uh, closed as the primary investor pivots to renewable energy. And the Annals of Social Justice, the Caliphate, uh, a Denver TV station security guard, has been charged with second-degree murder and a pro-police demonstrator's death. Wikipedia has banned users from expressing support for traditional marriage. You just simply cannot do it. Disney has added uh, warnings for racist content to classic films, and an anti-gun organization is preparing to launch a national group of gun owners who apparently don't like guns. Huh. Well, the Senate GOP is eyeing October 26th for the confirmation of Judge Barrett to the Supreme Court, and conservative icon Rush Limbaugh says cancer has shown progression in the wrong direction. On this day in history, 1803, the U.S. Senate ratifies the Louisiana Purchase. 1944, during World War II, General Douglas MacArthur steps ashore in the Philippines two and a half years after saying, I shall return. On this day in history, 1947, the House on Un-American Activities Committee opens hearings into alleged communist influence and infiltration in the U.S. motion picture industry. And finally, on this day in history, 2011, Muammar Gaddafi, 69, Libya's dictator for 42 years, is killed as revolutionary fighters overwhelm his hometown of Sirte and capture the last major bastion of resistance two months after his regime falls. Well, as I mentioned, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that the upper chamber of Congress will vote next Monday, that's October 26th, to confirm President Trump's nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, to the Supreme Court. They're expected to vote her out of committee on Thursday uh, at 1 p.m., as it's uh, customary for the committee to hold over the nomination of a Supreme Court nominee for a week. Barrett faced three days of intense questioning from senators on the Judiciary Committee last week. We will be voting to confirm justice to be Barrett next Monday, and I think uh, that will be another signature accomplishment in our effort to put on the court, the federal courts, men and women who believe in a, a quaint notion that the job of a judge is to actually follow the law.
That's a quote from Mitch McConnell during a news conference following the weekly GOP Senate lunch. Meanwhile, lawmakers in the House and Senate on Tuesday welcomed the Justice Department's move to file an antitrust lawsuit against Google that claims the tech behemoth used its power to preserve its monopoly via its search engine. Today's lawsuit is the most important antitrust case in a generation, Senator Josh Hawley said, a Republican from Missouri, in a statement. Google and its fellow big tech monopolists exercise unprecedented power over the lives of ordinary Americans, controlling everything from the news we read to the security of of our most personal information. And Google in particular has gathered and maintained that power through illegal means. The Department of Justice suit alleges that Google has used its dominance in online search and advertising to stifle competition and boost profits. The suit could be an opening shot in a battle against a number of big tech companies in the coming months. A spokesman for Google says that today's lawsuit by the Department of Justice is deeply flawed. People use Google because they choose to, not because they're forced to, or because they can't find alternatives. We will have a fuller statement this morning. Well, according to the lawsuit, for years, Google has entered into exclusionary agreements, including trying, uh, rather tying arrangements and engaged in um, anti-competitive conduct to lock up distribution channels and block rivals. Well, the U.S. Um, continues its struggle with pandemic-induced economic recession and a sputtering recovery. The country's burgeoning debt is not anyone's top concern these days, but perhaps it should be. Even deficit hawks are urging a dysfunctional Washington and a chaotic White House to approve another round of badly needed stimulus to the tune of trillions. Well, the U.S. federal budget is on an unsustainable path. Has been for some time, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell said this week. But Powell added, this is not the time to give priority to these concerns. However, when the country eventually pulls out of its current health and economic crisis, Americans will be left with a debt hangover. On Thursday, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that for fiscal year 2020, which ended on the 30th of September, the U.S. deficit hit $3.13 trillion, or 15.2% of GDP, thanks to the chasm between what the country spent, $6.55 trillion, and what it took in, $3.42 trillion for the year. As a share of the economy, the estimated 2020 deficit is more than triple what the annual deficit was in 2019, and it's the highest it's been since just after World War II. Now, the reason for the huge year-over-year jump is simple. Starting this spring, the federal government spent more than $4 trillion to help stem the economic pain to workers and businesses caused by sudden and widespread business shutdown. The most people agree more money will be needed to... uh, uh, to be spent until the White House manages to get the COVID-19 crisis under control. The Treasury Department won't put out final numbers for fiscal 2020 until later this month, but the CBO's estimates are on the mark. The country's total debt owed to investors, which is essentially the sum of annual deficits that have occurred over the years, will have outpaced the size of the economy, coming in at nearly 102% of GDP. That's according to calculations from the Committee for the Responsible Federal Government. Well, the debt hasn't been that high since 1946, when the federal debt was 106.1%. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. You know, I failed to mention earlier that a statue of Harvey Scott 
has been torn down here in the Portland area, marking the latest such figure to be toppled here. The statue stood at the top of Mount Tabor. It had been brought down by Tuesday morning. It's not clear exactly when it fell, and it doesn't appear anyone has taken credit for it, but it doesn't really matter because you can pretty much do whatever you want in the Portland area, and the DA is just going to, you know, in the interest of justice, um, you can just walk. Uh, well, Scott was editor of the Oregonian for 40 years, among his sins, apparently, and a well-known conservative who opposed his sister, Abigail Scott Dunaway, on women's suffrage. He died in 1910, and the statue made by um, Gutson Borglum, uh, while the sculptor was also working on Mount Rushmore, went up on Mount Tabor in 1933. So the sculptor was notable as well. Well, Scott's likeness is one of five statues to be torn down in the Portland area. Uh, protesters have felled statues of Theodore Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln earlier this month and previously brought down Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Protesters nationwide have targeted statues as symbols of longstanding oppression, most notably the statues of Confederate leaders in the South uh, during racial justice protests touched off by the uh, death of George Floyd in late May. So the latest casualty in terms of a statue in the Portland area, Harvey Scott, and apparently his sin, I'm assuming being editor of the Oregonian for 40 years was not his chief sin. It was that he opposed his sister um, uh, on her views on women's suffrage. So there you have it. Well, Bible reading reimagined. Tyndale's new Bible line features game-changing uh, study app, according to a recent study on the um, Christian website. As the way people digest media has changed, a leading Bible publisher is partnered with an app development company that worked on the popular stock trading app Robinhood to create a new line of Bibles compatible with its own game-changing mobile app. While there are countless mobile Bible apps as well as many print study Bibles available today, Tyndale House Publishers, one of the largest independent Christian publishing companies in the world, has released a new line of Bibles that seek to blend the two ideas, the two concepts. Well, last month, the publishing house unveiled a um, filament Bible collection, and it claims on its website to be Bible reading reimagined. I'm not sure we needed to reimagine Bible reading. I think if we just are doing it, that's probably um, moving in the right direction. As uh, we mentioned earlier in the program in my conversation with uh, Jeff Pack, uh, the percentage of people who are reading the Bible daily is very, very low. Well, it's the future of Bibles that they're telling us, the collection's webpage states, um, and they're calling it the Filament Bible Collection. While many study Bibles of um, uh, analysis on the scriptures included in the margins of the Bible's pages, the new Filament Bible Collection compiles all scripture-related notes, passage reflections, interactive maps, and videos related to each page of the Bible on the Filament mobile app. That's for users to reference as they read along in their print Bible, so they're to be used in tandem. Well, in, uh, in the last month, the app has been uh, used by some 9,000 people, and when readers scan the page number of the uh, uh, pa the passages that they're reading or studying into the app, they're given the option to read as um, easy-to-understand summary of the passage uh, and any additional contextual information, as well as devotional essays, maps, summary videos related to the passage, and so on. Well, the app contains a total of over 1,200 devotions written by various curated Christian authors. Uh, there is something really important about having a print Bible that is the center of how you engage with God's Word, but you don't want to get rid of all of the digital tools because they also have tremendous value. 
And that's a quote from Keith Williams, the app project director and senior editor of Tyndale House. Now, obviously, they have an interest in saving, in, uh, in selling hard copies of the Bible, but these two are designed to be compatible in Bible study. He goes on to say, we bring, on, uh, bring in that digital app to provide that supplementary information that really helps you engage and understand what you are reading in that print Bible. There are print Bibles that do this, study Bibles and that sort of thing. But what happens is that you try to fit all that stuff on a page and you end up with a huge book. And in some cases, the scripture text itself is squeezed off the page almost because there's so much distracting you uh, from it. Uh, We're able to take all of that and put it in an app. End quote. But Williams said that the app allows users to bring in the analysis and um, extra content of the study Bible when they want um, and not worry about having to haul around a giant book. Well, it allows you to have that portable Bible you can take uh, anywhere and allows you to study on your own at lunch, on the train, whatever he says. Or if you are at a small group or talking to someone about the Bible and there are questions that come up, you have access to tools that help you answer those questions. Well, the idea for the filament Bible was uh, first hatched in 2016. The first filament Bible was published in October of 2018. But last month, Tyndale announced the launch of this filament Bible collection. Collection, giving users an option of four different Bibles in New Living Bible uh, Translation or King James Version that are compatible with its now expanded mobile app. They say that they updated and uh, took it from being an experiment and into something that uh, we're really hoping to see spread uh, to be part of something that changes the way people think about how they interact with their Bibles and certainly their phones as a resource. Now, it makes sense. I haul around when I'm doing Bible study a variety of hardcover books, and it can be a bit challenging. I don't have a set location where I can do Bible study. I have to sometimes do it in one location or another, particularly during this pandemic when I'm using my husband's office. My desk is in a room that is being used for other things. So anyway, it's just something of a challenge. So it does make make uh, sense. Uh, if you have uh, and use your phone on a regular basis. According to Williams, Filament Bible's ability to provide access to spot-on content curated immediately for the page they're reading is unprecedented. By utilizing the free Filament app, these portable Bibles provide far more study resources and enjoyable teaching videos, devotionals, worship music than even the largest study Bible could offer, he says. And if you've uh, tried to fit all this content into one Bible, you're, going, you're carrying that Bible in a wheelbarrow. So again, it, it makes good sense. Now they've curated the, the sources. Um, one can only hope these are sources that you would uh, embrace and are uh, credible and viable and all of that. But the study portion is similar to the notes that might be found on the margins of a typical study Bible with introductions, notes, profiles of key Bible figures. Uh, under um, Reflect, readers uh, will be shown written reflections on how the ideas of the passages they're reading can be connected to people's everyday lives, as well as devotional articles, again, curated by Tyndale's approved sources. Uh, so it makes it makes sense from a practical standpoint. We'll see whether or not this picks up and people uh, not only begin using Tyndale's resources, but others uh, follow that same example and other Bible producers produce similar resources. Anyway, this is the uh, filament Bible. I'm not sure why they call it filament, but uh, anyway, Bible reading reimagined. Now, I guess my bottom line is if people are reading the Bible, um, that's great. If there are resources that make people more likely to read and study the Bible uh, and not uh, divert their attention away from God's word directly onto all of these other resources that can take up the bulk of your time, um, then it's uh, it's a good thing. Anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing how this uh, this pans out. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing. 
Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And I'd like to thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.